0: Uh, I want to take a few minutes to uh, introduce the kids who were in Israel last semester and to tell you about the various programs we have. Now, I'm going to do this very quickly. Most of you are familiar with the fact that through the Biblical Studies Divisions, there are two programs we are working with that can provide you with one semester study in Israel during your eight semesters here. We set out to put this program in, together in such a way that it would involve no extra time, no extra money. For the same eight semesters and for the eight, for the same money it would cost, you can spend one semester studying in Israel. Now, let me just say up front that this works best for Bible majors, for Biblical Studies majors. It works very, very neatly for all Biblical Studies majors. Uh, if uh, your major is otherwise and you'd be interested in this sort of thing it would take a little more fine-tuning and so on but we'd be glad to try and do it with you but uh... actually as i say there are two programs the first one is called the baptist for Israel institute it is a very unique program it is designed to uh... penetrate israel with the gospel which by the way is very very difficult to do israel is formally officially uh... uh they, they uh, officially prohibit any evangelism effort uh, but uh, this this uh, group was able to penetrate Israel some years ago and what they do is they put you on a kibbutz, a collective farm uh, that is well one form of the collective farm. They have a kibbutz just south of the Sea of Galilee on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where you live and work as a, a worker at the kibbutz, as a kibbutznik as it were although not officially and uh, and then you also study, take classes and you study the land and it's, a, it's an excellent program and it just happens in the sweet providences of God, speaking of which, uh, that's what we're going to talk about in a little while, but uh, in, the, in the providence of God, that uh, their representative is on campus today. His name is Paul Karpenko. Would you stand, Paul? Paul is, uh, welcome him, if you will. <laughs> Paul has a, uh, has a booth there in the, in the student center, along with the people from New Tribes, and so I'd invite you, if you're interested in that program, by the way, we have two students on campus who are in that program, Uh, Steve Shoemaker and Tim Arsenault so if you you, you, those those fellows could tell you all about that program so it's an excellent program then we have another program where we had six students on campus or that is uh, on another campus in Israel and let me just very quickly this is the American Institute of Holy Land Studies Again, some of you familiar with it this is uh, uh, on Mount Zion their address is Mount Zion Jerusalem and it's a program, it's actually a graduate studies program, which, uh, which accommodates undergrad students. So again, you can go there, live in Jerusalem for one semester, and uh, study. It's rather rigorous study, but uh, it's, it's an excellent program, and again, that fits in your program here. Do you understand that? Keep saying that. Well, this isn't something you do uh, you know, during the summer, or Something. this is, you take a semester, you go to Israel, you're in Israel uh... actually we have worked out an extension campus program that's our that's our campus you actually matriculate here you register here you pay your bill here we feel strongly about that of course that's our conviction and then we we handle all the other stuff and and you are a student at masters college uh... this semester on our on our uh, campus in in israel so i'm gonna ask the six kids to come up come on up you guys Um uh, uh, most of you know uh, one or well five where's joel yeah, if you're here, come on up. But uh, there's no particular form to this. Here comes Joel. But um, uh, these are the kids who spent last is, uh, last semester in Israel. We prayed for them some, and uh, and and I try to keep you abreast of them. I think you know Joel Wiseman, Constance Perot, Carrie Reginato, Becky King, John Parker, and uh, Todd Bolin. I'm going to ask a couple questions. Now, stay with me on this. I want you to... Uh, here I go, here I go. But... Uh, <laughs> the reason I say that is I want you to... Uh, to get a taste of, of the opportunity that is there. If the Lord would uh, would open this door for you and make this possible for you, it is a marvelous opportunity. Now, I'm just going to ask some questions and uh, stick the microphone in the face of some of these kids, and uh, they can take it from there. First of all, uh, where, where are we going to start? With the classes. Becky. All right. Uh, tell, Becky, tell us a little bit about the classes and so on. There.
1: Well, you can pretty much take anything um, you want regarding... Um history of Jews, the history of the Jews, archaeology. Um, If you're looking for a nice challenge, they can take Hebrew. Um, Like, the classes aren't real formal, um, but like Mr. Brookman said, they're a little bit more challenging than some of the classes you've had here. You're studying with graduate students, and they simply just adjust if you're an undergraduate. Um, Most of the classes have a lot to do with field trips. Like, almost every class you take, you spend a lot of time out on the field. You're not just in the classroom. And so, it's really neat to be able to study and then walk out there and be there. And um, really enhanced um, Old Testament um, survey and New Testament survey for me and um, some of the other things I took here.
0: Okay, now in that connection, one of the most important courses is the land of Israel. And Carrie, uh, you're going to address that?
1: Um, We had one class that everybody's required to take called Physical Settings, and during that we took about nine field trips all around Israel um, to different regions. And the last two field trips we were able to take were to um, the Negev and then up into Galilee, and that was just a highlight to be able to be in Galilee. Um, During the field trips, first you study the land and you study all the scripture that relates to it. Then you actually go out and see the land, and it's just it's phenomenal because the Bible just comes to life when you can actually be there and see exactly what happened and to be able to take a boat right across Galilee and to be in Capernaum and go in the synagogue there and just it's incredible and it just makes things come alive especially the parables to be able to see when they talk about the mountains being made low and the valleys lifted up and to see those valleys the wadis of the Nahals are incredible and you just you can't picture it until you actually see it then it becomes real and to be able to just walk the streets of the old city um, where Jesus was. It was just incredible. There's nothing like it and it's totally life changing.
0: Thanks, Carrie. Now not only in Israel, but the kids students were able to get beyond Israel. Is that you uh, <laughs> <laughs> <organizing this>
2: carefully. <laughs> Um I had the opportunity with my classes, they're fairly flexible even though they're a little challenging, to um, take a week and go to Greece and then go into the archaeological archaeological sites there. And also we took a week um, in Egypt, and then we also had another in an archaeological dig in Israel, and that's a real exciting thing, a real good opportunity to travel and see other cultures and to live with the people. I really enjoyed that.
0: And that was the more that was that was easier to reach from there. We're saying right? Yeah. Okay, and then beyond that, there was um, um, what was I going to do here? Oh, Todd, I was going to ask you. <laughs> How, the, uh, how this, uh, and this has been spoken to some already, but uh, can you summarize how the, what the impact this made on your understanding of, of
2: scriptures and so on? Well, I can't open the Bible today, any, any, uh, any single page, without um, uh, realizing how much I learned there. Every single page from the Exodus, the time we spent in Egypt, you know, you get to really understand the pharaohs and the life and how the Hebrew slaves worked. And then the week John and I spent a week or four days backpacking around the Sea of Galilee. And it's just incredible to be, you know, sleeping on the shore where Jesus fished and where he spoke and where he multiplied the fish and the loaves. Um, and just to, to, to be able to think about the fear the disciples had because we were there when a storm came up in the middle of the night and to just be able to see, you know, uh, the disciples shaking Jesus and then not understand what they were. It's so much more than, than just reading it on the page. Now, when you're at the Institute there
0: in Israel, and this is true both at BII and also at the IHLS, that is, both programs, there are students from a lot of other schools, a lot of different cultures and so on, different countries, and, uh, and, and you're able to get close to them. Joel, will you just speak to that, the different friends you were able to make beyond? The group?
2: Um, uh, I think in my experience of making friendships with uh, most of the students that were in campus, I represented the the broadest range of theological backgrounds. I had a uh, a friend who was uh, a member, he went to ORU Oral Roberts University so he was pretty uh, charismatic as far as you could go and then I had another friend whose name was uh, Craig who's there right now I believe and uh, he was a Southern Baptist and uh, we had all of us there and I was a little bit in the middle of both of them so we between the, the three of us I think we represented just about every theological view you could have and uh, we argued a little bit, but, it, but as time went on, we, uh, we really grew to love each other and respect each other's beliefs and, and understand where each one of us are coming from. And that helped, I think, deepen our character as friends and uh, showed us that uh, we are all one in the body of Christ.
0: Thanks. And one other thing, uh, one, one very important aspect of this trip is not only the fact that you study over there, but that you live over there and you, and, and you gain the exposure Uh, The long-term exposure, more than short-term, the long-term exposure to the culture and so on. And uh, that's an important aspect of it. John, you want to speak to that?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think uh, one of the the main impacts it made on me was that we got to be out into the culture and see the things that are happening in the Jewish culture. Like we went to uh, uh, some houses of some Jewish people for a Shabbat dinner, which is the Sabbath. And we had dinner with them, and they went through all the rituals and things, and told us how it was done, you know, back in the times of the Bible. <clears throat> the Bible. And uh, it was just incredible. And also, we we were there during uh, Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. You read that in Leviticus 23, and it's incredible to walk around through the town and see all these little booths set up, and you know, they they sleep in them and eat them and everything. And we set one up at the institute, and we were eating in it and sleeping in it, and it was great. Uh, but it's really, it opens your eyes to the culture and also the culture is so related to the Bible that it opens your eyes to that too.
0: Well, if you are interested, I just want to take this time because if you feel the Lord may, may have this for you, and we recommend that you do it during the, fall, the first semester of your junior year, I would like you to make these folks your, your first line of inquiry. Uh, ultimately, you're going to have to come to me and we're going to have to work it out because I represent the program here. But uh, there are, and, and I don't say this, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to create a, a storm or anything, but there is a very limited number of, of openings. We really can, cannot send more than six a semester. So uh, uh, if you are interested, I'd like for you to, to, to take the initiative, maybe come to one of these kids, get to know them a little bit, and and talk to them about the program ask them your questions and and see if it really does make sense for you and if it would be profitable i believe it would be profitable but for you specifically and then uh, and then if you are interested come to me seek me out and 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 cuz we need to get it working especially if we're talking for next year we've already got some people on board for next year but i'm telling you something honest to goodness i i think this program is really crowned with glory and honor i mean i this is a good solid educational experience it really fits and I'd encourage you, if you think the Lord is, is, uh, has it for you, to, to take those steps. Okay, thank you folks, thank you so much. Now, uh, one other thing, I want to ask you, yeah, good group. That was our, uh, that was sort of our pioneer group, and they really did a good job for us. This is the first group we've sent over to that institute. One of the things, many of you know Heather Cucker. Heather is there this semester, I mentioned to you, her, her to you before, I believe. She, uh, you know, she had made up her mind that she wanted to go this semester. Uh, of course, at the end of last year, the January 15th thing was beginning to, you know, sort of uh, uh, monopolize the horizon, as it were, as we look forward to that. And, and there was a lot of prayer and a lot of concern, and I talked to her parents, and I talked to as many people as I could find to try and give some inputs. And her parents were, and they finally decided, and they were comfortable with the decision, to send Heather and interestingly enough, Heather went, and she, she flew out on the 2nd of January. And she got over there, and, uh, you know, they signed everybody up, and they got going and so on, and they take their first walk. And right away, as soon as you get there, they take any Old Testament walk. So you walk the Old fail, you walk the city of David, and you go down and see the excavation. You go down to the Hezekiah's tunnel, and she had walked through Hezekiah, and she was wired. You know, she called her dad and said, this is the greatest thing ever happened to me, I'm so happy, I'm so glad. And then, the next week... They spent all the whole week training on where the various bomb shelters are and, and how to put a gas mask on. And, and honest to goodness, just from morning to night and drills and how to recognize the various sirens and so on. And I felt so bad because Heather really, she was petrified. And, uh, and then people started leaving. You couldn't get out of Israel for all the people on the planes trying to get out of Israel. And uh, they had two, two short terms. The institute there in Jerusalem runs short-term, uh, about three, four-week programs. Had two of them on board. They sent all them home on the 14th. Heather was still there, so she really, uh, I, she really was uh, was frank, frankly petrified by it. But uh, I think I've talked to her dad, in a couple of she's from up in Modesto. I've talked to her dad a couple of times since. She's uh, much more encouraged, as we all are, I think. And uh, she, she, her, she's, her spirits and wits are still about her. But uh, pray for Heather. Pray for Heather. I, I'm anxious for this to be a uh, a positive experience for, and I, I believe it still can be this year. Well, changing roles, if you will, here for a few minutes. I would like us to focus this morning on a on a subject which is dear to my heart. And if you have uh, sat in my classes, uh, you've probably heard me dilate on this some little bit, and and so. Uh, you know, forgive the repetition, but I just thought I had the opportunity to preach uh, to the entire student body, such as this is, and I I am anxious to, to communicate to you what has been one of the most important lessons of my life, and that is simply a deep and abiding and preserving appreciation of the doctrine of divine providence. I have often said that it seems to me, you know, the the blessed truth of the providence of God and I don't think honestly that you're going to be able to function and survive well as a believer unless you have that abiding confidence in God's providence which may be somewhat disconcerting to some of you 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 probably have no idea what I'm talking about what I'm talking about when I say providence what in the world do I mean by providence well let me begin by telling you a story it's a familiar story it's a Bible story it's the story of Esther now, many of you know the story of Esther, and so I'm going to tell it very, quick, very quickly. But this is the story recorded in the book of Esther. It is, by the way, uh, John mentioned that they were der- there during Suk- Sukkot, or the-, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. We were there, uh, oh, I think it was in 80, 86, we were there during the Feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M, the Feast of Purim, the Feast of Lots, L-O-T-S. The Feast of Purim, of course, celebrates the, the experience of Esther. It's, a, it's a, delightful, a delightful time to be in Israel. Absolutely delightful. We didn't plan it that way. it just in the sweet providences of God. Uh, it, it worked out that way, and, and there we were. But at any rate, uh, I'll come back to that. Uh, Esther, of course, is the story of a young woman who was used by God to save Israel from the genocidal efforts of a wicked man by the name of Haman. You remember this story? There was a king of Persia. Israel at that time was living under the domination of Persia. There was a king by the name of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus went out to battle and lost the battle. And He came home and to sort of drown his, his, uh, his misery and his sorrow, he gave himself to uh, drunkenness and debauchery for a time. And there was a long feast. In the midst of that feast, he decided to uh, regale his, uh, his fellows by having his wife, the queen Vashti, come and dance before them and so he demanded that she come and she refused to do that well as a result he deposed Bashti, he threw her out said you're going to be queen no longer and he decided to select a new queen and in order to do that he decided to have a nationwide beauty contest. You Remember the story Esther was a beautiful fair young maiden and so she was, whether or not she was required to or coerced to or whether or not you know she filled out a blank at the local you know, grocery store or something, and I don't know what but <laughs> But she got involved in the, in the, uh, in the uh, beauty contest, there's some discussion as to whether or not that was wicked for her to do that. And uh, she, in, uh, again, she, she was selected as the next queen. And so she, by reason of her beauty, was made queen, and of course she had an uncle. The uncle's name was Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai was a functionary in Ahasuerus' court. We don't know exactly what his responsibility was, but he worked in the palace. Uh, Again, sometime, and we're not told everything about it, somewhere in this this matrix of events, there had been uh, an assassination attempt against Ahasuerus. A group had decided they were tired of Ahasuerus' reign, and so they had decided to assassinate him, and Mordecai had discovered that plot. Nobody else had discovered it, he'd discovered it, he'd gone to the to the bodyguards and informed them that there was this plot and so the bodyguards intercepted the plot and saved Ahasuerus' life now as you might expect the bodyguards were a little little embarrassed by this you know the the, the court policemen were embarrassed by the fact that this this plot had had developed like it had and was so close to coming to fruition and they didn't know anything about it so they didn't tell the king about it he didn't know anything about it but they did as was required put it in the court annals the history book which the court uh, demanded which the king demanded to be kept well, in the course of time, there was another man who worked in the, in the, uh, in the uh, palace by the name of Haman. Haman uh, was very close to the king Ahasuerus. Haman despised the Jews. But uh, Haman, because he was sort of the prime minister, the king's right-hand man, he demanded that everybody bow uh, when they when they encountered him. Mordecai, who evidently had some scruples as a Jew, refused to do that. He felt it would be a violation of the Old Testament Uh, prohibition against doing obeisance or worship to any but God to bow to to Haman so he refused to do that and that drove Haman nuts and uh, Haman decided that he was going to do something about it and again and again it would just drive Haman nuts that uh, that uh, Mordecai refused to bow down to him so finally trying to abbreviate the story here just a little bit finally what happened you remember is Haman decided that he, would, he went to the king and he asked the king to sign. He told the king, Ahasuerus, that there were a people in the land who were a threat. And he asked them to sign a command allowing him, or a law allowing Haman to destroy all of these people, the Jews. Now, of course, Ahasuerus had no idea that his new queen, Esther, was a Jew. Mordecai had told her not to say anything about that. But uh, foolishly, the king signed that, that directive. And you remember what happened? Uh, this was discovered by Mordecai. And Mordecai sought out Esther, his niece, probably, and uh said to her, uh, Perhaps the Lord has called you to the kingdom for such a time as this. You are uniquely postured, you in a situation where you can get to the king and get his ear, and we have to figure out some way, because otherwise Haman is going to decide is going to wipe out all the Jews. And uh, so she put together this plot now it was it was it was of course unlawful for anybody to approach the king unless he or she was was uh... was uh... You know, uh, uh solicited unless he had asked them to come so she put together this this dinner invitation and she uh... went to Mordecai she went to the king and she said i'm gonna fix dinner for you and for your most trusted assistant Haman and i want you to come on such and such a night and uh... so he consented to come and they came on that night and interestingly enough on that night of course Esther had prepared herself and practiced I'm sure and she was ready to reveal this plot but her nerve failed and she couldn't do it and so she just said well uh, would you come to dinner tomorrow night again and she thought maybe she could you know screw up her courage a little bit more for tomorrow night well meanwhile Haman leaves that night and he is just absolutely overcome with himself he is so impressed with himself because here the beautiful new queen of the king had had a dinner and invited only him and the king and he just thought he was so important and he was feeling so good about himself and he left and as he walked out of her chambers he happened to pass Mordecai and Mordecai once again refused to bow down to him and therefore she, uh, he was just incensed and he went home and he complained to his wife Haman did and he said there's this one Jew and what can I do and they sat down and they said let's do this. What you need to do, his wife said to him, what you need to do is build a gallows. Go have him do it right now. Have him build this huge gallows. And tomorrow morning, first thing before the sun comes up, you go to the king, and you be waiting there when he arises, and you ask him for permission, and he'll give you permission to murder to, to, to execute Haman because he's so he I'm sorry, to execute Mordecai because he, he refuses to, to, to give you respect. So he did that. He had a gallows built. Then he got up early in the morning, and he went and he sat outside the king's chamber meanwhile you remember this perhaps the king couldn't sleep he'd had a sleepless night and uh, I don't think this necessarily says anything about history but he called for his courtiers to come and to read history to him he evidently just personally perceived it to be the world's greatest cure for insomnia you forgive me but uh, I'm sure it's not but uh, actually, I love history But at any rate, uh, he thought, well, I'll have him read to me as long as I'm awake anyway. And again, what happened is that in all the different books they might have read, they they just happened to turn to exactly that portion that recorded the time when Mordecai had revealed a plot against the king and had saved the king's life. The king didn't know anything about this. He said, wait a minute, you mean there's somebody right here who saved my life? Well, I need to do him, uh, I need to do something special for him. But the king said, I'm so tired, I've been up all night. Some of this is bookmanian emendation of the book, of the story, but this is basically the way it went. The, the king said, I've been, I've been up all night and uh, I need somebody to help me figure out what I could do to, to honor this man who had saved my life. Who can help me? Is there anybody around? They looked outside. There's Haman sitting outside the door. So they said, well, Haman's right out here. Maybe he can help you. So he came and brings him in and he says, now Haman, there's a man in my kingdom that I want to specially honor. Of course right away Haman thinks must be me last night I was at dinner with him and his just his queen you know and Haman thought it was he and uh, the, the king said there I, I want to especially honor this man and I don't know exactly how I can do it. you got any ideas and Haman says well I'll tell you what I would do and I'd have a big parade and I'd put him on the marvelous chariot and I'd ride him right through the town and I'd I'd show him off and let the whole city know that uh, everybody everybody know that you think this man's just the greatest thing there ever was king said, that's an excellent idea. I want you to go and do that for Mordecai. <laughs> well, at that point, Haman thought better of the request that he had come to ask. So he left and, 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 and prepared that. But that night, they had, the, uh, they had the dinner, the second dinner. And at that second dinner, Esther waxed bold to tell the king what Haman was planning. The king was beside himself. He was enraged. He'd been duped. He'd been schnookered. And so he was so mad, he stormed outside. Came back in, and and while he was gone, he stormed out of the the chambers. While he was gone, Haman, who realized that uh, things were not looking real good for him at this moment, went over and threw himself at the feet of Esther to beg for his life. She was evidently laying on a couch of some sort. The king came back in, saw Haman there sprawled out at the feet of Esther, and basically, he said, first of all, you try and trick me into killing all the Jews, and now you try and take liberties with my wife. And uh, so he said, is there some, some gallows around here that we could be rid of Haman with? And <laughs> Sure enough, there was a gallows out there. And so that's where we get the expression, Haman swung on his own gallows. By the way, what happened was that uh, by reason of the fact that, that the, the Persians could not, even the king was subject to lo- the law, the law of the Medes and the Persians, it was, uh, he, couldn't, he could not simply rescind that law. He had signed it into law. So what he did is, he secretly made another law, and that second law was that the Jews were allowed to defend themselves. And he alerted the Jews as to the day, by the way, when Haman, backing up, when Haman had got permission to kill all the Jews, he had cast lots to determine what day he would do it on. The Hebrew word for lots is Purim, P-U-R-I-M. And consequently. the, on the day that had been chosen, the Jews were allowed to defend themselves, and they did that, and they slaughtered those who had set out to slaughter them. And to this day, they celebrate the feast of Purim. When I, when I, I love to tell a story. When I was in uh, in Israel during the feast of Purim, one time we had a free evening, and I, I really, I like to build free evenings into the program when we're over there, so that you can kind of wander Jerusalem. And uh, there was just, just half the, we just stumbled across a room where it said that there was a, a lecture that night by a Jewish rabbi in English. And uh, so this buddy of mine and I, Ed Glennon and I, who now is a teacher at seminary at Minneapolis, but we we made our way up there at about seven o'clock in the evening and it was probably, honestly, one of the two or three most delightful experiences of my entire life. I wish I could communicate to you what this evening was like. But I, we came into this room and it was just a small room and there were maybe there were maybe 20 people in the room, at least 15 of them were women and at least 10 of those were over 70 years of age. It was just these sweet little old ladies and they were sitting there and they were quilting and or you know whatever you do and uh, you know just sitting there very <laughs> very sort of a domestic thing and then this this fella comes in who is absolutely you know right from central casting for for a rabbi. I mean this wise and little old man with the with the beard that explodes in every direction and the hair all over and and the eyes that burn through you and and he he had this this topic that he was gonna lecture on but he said you know it's Purim and so rather than doing that I think we'll just work our way through the story and he took his Hebrew Bible and he would and I, I can't understand Hebrew but he would read a portion of the book of Hebrew uh, I'm sorry the book of uh, Esther in Hebrew and then he would just talk about it and he talked us through and I have Two or three stories that I could tell you about it but I just leave it at that it was to, to hear this man talk his way through the book of Esther I'll never forget one thing he got to the uh, he got to the account the place where Haman because Mordecai would not bow down to him uh, Haman determined to slaughter all the Jews and I never forget this is this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about but it just burned itself into my mind here he said uh, This little Jewish rabbi, he said, now isn't that the way it is? He said, if you've got a Scottish neighbor and your Scottish neighbor does something wrong to you, you want to kill your Scottish neighbor. If If you have a German neighbor and your German neighbor does something to make you mad, you want to kill your German neighbor. If you have a Jewish neighbor and your Jewish neighbor does something that makes you mad, you want to kill all the Jews in the world. And that's, that's very much uh, the, the history of the Jews. It's very, very much what they live with. But come back to the book of Esther. My point is simply this in telling that whole story. Do you realize, folks, that that is the story of how Israel was saved, the Jews were saved from genocidal slaughter? What is it you tell me that is peculiar about the book of Esther? You tell me. No mention of God throughout. A lot of people have questioned whether it even belongs in the Bible. Of course it belongs in the Bible. That's the point. The the thing you need to see is that God wrought to save Israel without miracle. There was no miracle. Now, I I, I think in order to understand what's going on in Providence, you have to understand just that. You have to contrast it to miracles. When when God does a miracle, He interrupts human history. Now that's another subject, and I can go on and on at that with that at some length. But understand that a miracle, and 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 I'm absolutely convinced, and I'm, I'd be happy to mud wrestle with whomever at whatever time on this, but but you know another time. But I'm absolutely convinced the miracles are not for today. That miracle happens when God interrupts human history, and 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 interjects Himself primarily, but. Providence is God working through what we call secondary causation. That is, he uses what seemed to be the normal events of human history to get his work done. He did that in the book of Esther. Now think about it. You had a battle which was lost, which resulted in a drunken orgy, which resulted in a very unfair request. Time out. I just never forget can we talk about this in the next here? I'll just never forget. Remember those little old ladies I talk, told you about in the room there? That, 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 that little rabbi knew how to jerk them around. I mean, he knew how to, he just knew how to, you know, push the right buttons. And he had them just so excited all night long. But uh, at the beginning of Esther, at the beginning of Esther, it says, now forgive me for this, but at the beginning of Esther, it says, what's going on? <laughs> Come to me. At the beginning of Esther, it says that uh, Haman, in the midst of this drunken feast demanded that his wife Vashti come and dance before the men of the feast wearing her crown. Remember that? It says wearing her crown. See, There's this big debate as to whether or not what he meant was only her crown. And when that rabbi suggested that these little women just absolutely started bouncing off of walls you wouldn't believe it. And they they were beside themselves with rage and they carried on and carried on and he would he would get him settled down just where he wanted him then he'd say it again just to watch him <laughs> take off again but <laughs> i never see anything like it in my whole life but anyway i'm sorry i'm i'm wondering my point is my point is, when you think about the Esther, think about the book of Esther, you have a battle which was lost, which resulted in a drunken feast, which resulted in a request or a demand that the, the, the queen dance. She refused, and therefore there was a beauty contest. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, if you don't mind, you've got this assassination attempt going on, and uh, uh, Mordecai discovers the assassination attempt. Then you've got this anger on the part of Haman, and you've got this uh, sleepless night. Where the king is not able to sleep, and therefore he calls for the annals to be to be uh, uh read and so on, and the whole thing comes together. What happens? Israel is saved. Do you think God was in that? Absolutely. That's the point. I think that's what Esther's all about, to teach you that God knows how to accomplish his purposes without miracle. One more illustration, real quickly. There are in the Old Testament, sold this to a class just the other day, there are in the Old Testament two times. When the nation of Israel was taken captive by a foreign land. Once was when they were taken to Egypt. Actually, they went down to Egypt under Joseph, but they became a slave people under Egypt. God delivered them from Egypt, right? Now, you remember those stories. Like I told a class last week, you got all kinds of flannel graphs on those. Ever since you were a kid, man, you've had all these stories about, because what'd you have? You had miracles. Moses is raised up. He sees a burning bush. At the burning bush, God tells him to go back and to restore, uh, you know, to go down and bring Israel. Now you've got these 10 plagues. Then you've got the uh, the uh, Red Sea experience where they go through the Red Sea. Then they get into the wilderness and, they, and and bread falls out of the sky every day. And Moses whacks a rock and a river comes out of it. And they drink of the river all the, time, the whole time. Their, their, their shoes don't get old, all this sort of thing. The whole thing is overlaid with miracle. Praise God. That's wonderful. All right. Now there's another time when Israel is taken captive. This time they are taken captive to Babylon. They're in Babylon for 70 years. Once again, as a matter of fact, God had said, Jeremiah 25:11, they were gonna be there for 70 years. And once again, God brings them out. We've dealt with that before here, but, but what, what happens is, Babylon has a policy of taking people out of their homeland and putting them somewhere else, because that way they're not, they don't have a tendency to rebel. So when they have trouble with Israel, they take them out of their homeland, take them to, take them to Babylon. But now, Babylon is destroyed by Persia. Persia, the, the king of Persia, his name is Cyrus, realizes that it really is, is foolish to, to, take people out of their homeland because you totally destroy the economic infrastructure. And the reason you have a great empire is so that you can extract money. Uh, uh, uh what's the word I want? Uh, not taxes, but, uh, tribute. So you can take tribute from, from those, those captive peoples. But if you, if you destroy the political and economic infrastructure, you can't do it. So, so Cyrus, out of the most the most transparent political and economic consideration says, "No, no, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to tear them out of their land. I'm going to allow them to return." So he issues a decree allowing them to return, and and they do just that. And is 70 years after they were carried off in fulfillment of Jeremiah 25:11, they're allowed to return. Folks, was God in that? Of course He was. Of course He was. But there was no miracles. A matter of fact. And, and that's why I say you don't know those stories very well. You don't know Zerubbabel like you know Moses because it's hard to make a flannel graph of Zerubbabel. You know what I'm saying? Nothing, doesn't seem to be anything exciting. You know, there are no waters that are parting or anything. They just, there's a decree and they allow, they're allowed to come back. And we don't even spend any time thinking about that. And my fear is that we forget that indeed God was at work and is at work. And I'll bring it right down to today, folks. I, I think that today we have this ongoing debate, and we're all familiar with it, over miracles and tongues and all that sort of thing, and without getting deeply into that thing this, this morning, uh, and I, I am absolutely convinced that miracles are all gone for today, but without getting deeply into that, all I want to say is that right away, the issue becomes, wait a minute, you mean God isn't big enough to do miracles anymore? Of course he's big enough to do miracles. Like I keep saying, miracles are small-time stuff for God. I don't think God works up a sweat, part in the waters of the Red Sea. You think he had to work hard at that? I don't know what he does have to work hard at, I guess, when you get right down to it. But my point is, uh, you know, we think that, here's the point, we think that that uh, uh, God really hasn't worked up a sweat, if you don't mind. I say that reverently, but you see what I'm saying. He's not really working hard and, and working on our behalf unless somehow he intercedes with miracles. Folks, you need to disabuse your mind of that mentality. You need to understand that God is at work in your life. And if you cannot know the design, you can know there is a design. And if you can't understand everything God is doing, you can trust the one who is doing it on your behalf. And it seems to me that the day is coming when we will understand. So what I'm here to say is simply this, that we need to come to grips with the reality that God does sit on the throne of the universe, and that all things do answer to His purposes. All things do work out according to His will. Look at Daniel 4, one of my favorite passages. Many of you probably knew I was going to get there before long, but Daniel chapter 4, and just read the statement of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king. Uh, gives us one of the most important statements of theology in all the Bible here in Daniel 4 34. Remember the context here. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked pagan king who had been warned by Daniel. Daniel, as a matter of fact, God had given him a dream and, of a tree that was cut down and said, You better be careful because if you take too much to yourself, God knows how to cut you down to size. And Nebuchadnezzar went out and won a couple of battles at Egypt and Tyre and came back and was so proud of himself. Remember, he stood in the city walls and he said, Is not this mighty Babylon, which I have built by the power of my might and for the glory of my majesty? And before the words got out of his mouth, he became a madman. For seven years, he lived like an animal, and they had to keep him in the garden. And, and uh, you know, they wouldn't let he wouldn't let people near him, and he'd eat grass like a cow and all that sort of thing. He was an absolute madman because he refused to honor the god who rules the universe and at the end of those days he came as a matter of fact verse 34 it says at the end of that period i nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven my reason returned to me i blessed the most high praised and honored him who lives forever and his dominion is an everlasting dominion god's kingdom endures from generation that is he is king of all things through all generations is that what that means and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing he does according to his will both in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? Nebuchadnezzar came to the understanding that God rules in heaven and on earth, and he is accomplishing his purposes. And I think you and I need to understand that. Let me just list here for you four practical aspects of the doctrine of providence. I haven't defined it real well. I hope you understand what I mean. It's just God working where you can't necessarily see his working. It's working through secondary causes, through what seems to us to be the normal events of history, both the broad event of the history of mankind and the history of our lives and so on, seem to be normal events. God is at work. But let me say four things about that real quickly. I mentioned this before, but number one, I think it's, un- it's important with regard to the doctrine of providence, it's important to understand, number one, that the Bible never suggests that we can know the design, simply that we can know that there is a design. In other words, I think it's very, very dangerous to interpret providence. say, because this happened, therefore God is telling this to me. I think that's very, very dangerous. Look at Philemon 15. It's kind of interesting. Paul, way back there in Philemon. You remember the, the, the situation here. Paul, a prisoner in Rome, had again in the providences of God, God had brought in contact with Paul a young man by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave who had run away from a man in Colossae. A man in Colossae was, was named Philemon. And Paul is writing to ask Philemon to receive Onesimus back uh, in kindness. But in verse 15, it's just interesting what Paul says. He says, perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. In other words, he's saying, all right, Onesimus fled but in the providences of God he found his way to Rome probably to escape detection because you could hide yourself in the slums of that great city of Rome and in, in somehow he came in contact with Paul and Paul led him to the Lord and found out that he was actually a runaway slave and now he Paul is sending him back not as a slave but as a, as a brother but he says Paul sort of feels his way through this. The, the providences he says perhaps it was for this reason even Paul the apostle was reluctant to 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 say absolutely that this was what God was doing. Uh, there's another verse over in Romans 1, I won't take you there, but where Paul prays and says that to the Romans, he says, I am praying uh, if by any means now at length I might have a successful journey to come to you. And, you know, Paul at the end of his third missionary journey is praying that somehow in the providences of God uh, he would be allowed to make his way to Rome. Well, you remember the story. Paul went back to Jerusalem, was arrested because of a false charge in the temple, was taken to Caesarea and held there for two years because of, uh, because of uh, uh, you know, an official who, who, who demanded a bribe and Paul wouldn't pay it. And then because another official tried to haul him back up to Jerusalem, Paul appealed to Rome and, and to Caesar. And so he was put in a troop ship and taken and on the way. The, the ship was wrecked. And finally, after the shipwreck and so on, he came, to, came to, to Rome, and he thanked God. You read Philippians, he says, I thank God. I asked for it to get here, and I got here. The point is, maybe all along the way, he didn't understand all the providences of God, but he never doubted that God was working. And God was working, and God got Paul to Rome. And the point being that uh, even though we, we perhaps don't always understand all the providences, we don't, as a matter of fact, we need to trust the fact we need to to rest in the fact that there is a plan that God is working out His plan. All right. A second thing. I'm just going through. These are thoughts that occur to me, and I hope they're somewhat helpful. First of all, like I say, if you can't know you can't know what the plan is, but you can know there is a plan, and God is working out His purpose. A second thing that's very very important, very quickly, and that is that God's providence is big enough to handle all the decisions you are called upon to make. You know, in just a number of of. Uh, Situations here at the college, I have opportunity, and I praise the Lord for this, and I'm happy for it, to sit down with various students on a, just on a friendly basis and, and pray with them and think with them and talk to them about decisions they have to make. And, and, and that's, you know, like I say, I'm, I'm thankful for that, but again and again, I run into this mentality, folks. This, this, this mentality, like there are all these doors, you know, there are 50 doors lined up, and all of them are disasters except for one. And God's, you know, hadn't made clear to me. And so I got to, even, even, you know, I have kids come to me and and, and worried about the major they're going to take. And and, and many times it's like, it's like my whole life's at stake right here. I got to choose the whole life. My whole life is just hanging on the balance right here. If I don't make, no, it's not. No, it really isn't. I mean, those decisions are important, but understand that, that God is a God who can deal with the decisions you make. Now, we're not talking about decisions between morality and immorality, between righteousness and wickedness. God can deal with that too, but he deals with that through chast- chastening. But my point is that, that, uh, understand that you serve a God whose providence, whose, whose plan for the universe include, includes human responsibility. You have choices to make. God demands that you make those choices. He demands, uh, that you do so prayerfully and carefully and, and, and with, with the wisdom that you, you can obtain only in the Word of God. But ultimately, folks, you're gonna make the choice and if you make this choice if you choose this major god can deal with that god can give you a fruitful happy life he can bless your life if you choose if you choose this major over here i I get more you know more specific same thing is true quite frankly with regard to the spouse you choose you're going to have to choose folks god's not going to show you but god bless his name his providence is big enough that if you honor all the standards of the word of god and you prayerfully it's not as if if i don't marry you know i was raised and what I have taken to calling the ash sheep" approach to the Christian life you know what I mean in all these choices you make the wrong choice it's ash heap for you you're on the ash heap. I don't know how many times I heard it you marry the wrong person your life's on the ash sheep. that's it you know and I and I just felt like I was going through you know life was a minefield for me you know I mean just you're walking along and you just take the wrong step and kaboom it's over it's ash heap time for you and I I'm just saying I don't believe that I think you need to understand that you have a, a God whose providence includes your responsibility to make responsible, moral, adult choices. And God can handle those choices. That's what I'm saying. God, God's providence can handle those. Another thing. I'm hurrying. To be done. Uh, God's providence, and I sort of stepped on this before, but very quickly. God's providence includes the wickedness of men, but it will never suffice as an excuse for that wickedness. In other words, the wickedness of men cannot frustrate the purposes of God. Uh, perhaps the outstanding verse in that regard is that famous verse in Genesis 50 where Joseph, after being reunited with his brothers, says to his brothers concerning their wickedness in selling him into slavery and so on, they're hateful. he says, God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And evil, the even Psalm 72 says the evil devices of men God will use to clothe himself with glory, literally. And again and again, as a matter of fact, go to Acts chapter 4. I, I think you never see this so remarkably. That is how God can take the wickedness of men and though he will not take the blame for that wickedness, you can never lay any wickedness, any evil at the feet of God. You can never say, well, God planned it, so I had to do it. No, you can't do that. But by the same token, God's providence includes man's wickedness, and man's wickedness will not frustrate him. In Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, you have the statement of uh, uh, Peter with regard to the crucifixion of Christ. For truly in this city, he's preaching there to the Sanhedrin, for truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, uh, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles. Now look at verse 28, to do whatever thy hand, God, and thy purpose predestined to occur. I, I, I keep saying, I, I read so many, I have in the past read so many uh, accounts of the life of Christ and so on, especially the Passion Week, that paint a picture of Jesus as almost, as almost stumbling through the Passion Week and surprised by everything and finally winding up on a cross and basically, forgive me, hanging there with the attitude that says, I don't understand this. What happened? I never expected this. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, I'm not, that's not to suggest. Uh, matter of fact, if you look in Acts 2, you have the same thought where Peter says there at Pentecost, Acts 2 and verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you uh, by signs, wonders, miracles. So in verse 23 is what I want. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It happened by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But he goes on to say, You nailed to the cross by hands of godless men, wicked men. So the point is that although it was in the in the providences of God and the plan of God, it was wicked. Now I'm just saying to you that that uh, we live in a fallen world, but never get the idea that God's plan, God's providence, God's purpose for this world is going to be frustrated by the wickedness of men. It can't happen. He, his providences are able to handle even wickedness. Now never an excuse for it, but it 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 it, it cannot be God's God's purposes for this universe cannot be frustrated by man's wickedness. And then one other thing, just as a conclusion here, and that is simply this, that I don't believe you will ever understand or trust God as you should until you learn to delight in the doctrine of divine providence. I used to uh, sit under a man, uh, Dr. Richard V. Clearwaters, a fighting fundamentalist, but a good man. Matter of fact, we used to say the V was for vicious, though it really wasn't. But at any rate, uh, he was a he was a God-blessed man, and I preached Dr. He used to say this. He was raised in the frontiers, as it were, and uh, actually in the Northwest. He was uh, an old man and had been raised in a, when I knew him, and, and, and was raised in a uh, cabin in the the Northwest. And he used to tell about the times in the evening when he'd sit in front of the fireplace or he'd actually lay on the floor as a boy, and his mother would be embroidering. And he said, you know, I'd lay on my back and I'd look up and I'd see all of these threads hanging down. And they were different textures and different colors and they were, everything seemed entirely haphazard and chaotic. There was no plan to that, just these threads going every which direction. And he says, I'd stand up and I'd look from the top at the at what she was doing and immediately I saw this wonderful, beautiful design. Now, I wonder if that's not an apt picture of our position living on this side. That is, we look at what God is doing and it seems like everything is chaos. Everything is falling apart. But folks, listen, delight in this. Do you realize that you serve a God who can take all of those disparate threads of human existence, your life, and the lives of all those around you, and the lives of all those who have lived before you, and all those who will come after you, and the lives of all those who who touch you and intersect somehow with your life, take all of those threads and weave them together marvelously so it's precisely the pattern that God set out to produce. Everything is working out to God's purposes. Now, simply define the greatest of those purposes or, or the sum of those purposes is his own glory. But as part of that, in order to glorify himself, part of that is your life and the fruitfulness and, and, and growth and maturity that God wants for you. God's planned that. It's all taken care of. Now, to be sure, it involves effort on your part and you have responsibilities. But you serve a God who is very much at work. All things do indeed work out according to his will. And I, even today, quite frankly, we have this situation where there are alarming things going on in the, in the, in the, uh, in the Middle East and so on. You know, Proverbs 21 says that the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand and he turns it as the water courses. You know, the figure there, you guys will appreciate this, is, uh, is of a man who is, who is trying to construct a cistern. And uh, when you have a cistern, you, 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 you want the water, the, uh, when the water falls, you want it to flow into that cistern. And so they'd make little channels. And here you have a little rivulet of water, and a man just builds a little pile of dirt here and turns the river of water, you know, just very, very simply is able to change the course of that little tiny stream of water. That's what it is for God to order history. And we have a madman right now by the name of Hussein, and we think, boy, it seems like history is running amok. The, 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 you know, the rains are flopping in the wind, you know, the, the, the stage is, is, is running mad, and that's not true. Listen, folks, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hands. And not only is that true in the greater, greater course of human history, but it's true in your life. So I say to you one more time, you need to understand that God is at work. If you don't know the plan, I don't think you can, you can know that there is a plan, there is a design, and God is working it out in your life. And praise God, you serve a God who's big enough to do that. There is nothing, there is nothing in all of my puny experience that so amazes me and teaches me the might and the majesty of my god as the fact that he is indeed in control of all the events of the universe and he's going to accomplish his purpose praise god let's have a word of prayer and we'll be done our father in heaven we do thank you for that revelation of yourself that you have given to us father we are finite we are fallen we never could have discovered you had we made a god of our own making he would have been sorely deficient but father you have taken the initiative You've shown yourself to us. We thank you for that. We can't understand everything about you, but Father, that which is revealed belongs to us and to our children, and we're hungry to know you as you are. We thank you that you are indeed a God who orders all of history, and Father, we'd, I'd pray that you might help us to realize that and that you might help us to trust in it when there are things which, which influence us, the things that intersect our lives that are difficult and we're confused. When there are things that are, that are, that break our hearts, help us to realize, Father, that you are never caught napping. You're never off the job. There's never a time when you're, you're, your eye is not single to our needs. And Father, that all things are being ordered by you and will answer to your purpose. And we need to simply rest in that. So send us forth with that confidence. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We're done. Thank you, folks. We're dismissed.